Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from Richard Bernstein Advisors, RBA, Mike Kentopoulos. Mike serves as the Director of Fixed Income for the firm. Uh, Joining us from the UBS Chief Investment Office, glad to have back Leslie Falconio, Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy Americas. So with that, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Mike. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mike. We really appreciate you on the podcast again, and we're looking forward to hearing to some of your thoughts. And I think, you know, as always, you and I have great timing when it comes to these podcasts, because there's, there's, <laughs> let's just say every time we speak, it's not dull, which is, <laughs> the market's on us, which is absolutely fantastic. So thanks again for coming on. And I just really want to kick off with, let's let's just start with really what we're seeing now in the marketplace. And when I say that, you know, this sort of, um, a bit of a conundrum, I want to call it, if you will, that when you think about the Fed moving to from, let's just say, almost zero to, to 500 in around a year pace and the consistency of the consumer, like how long or what is your outlook in terms of the strength that we see and when, in fact, although we know there's a lag from hiking to the real economy, you know, what's your outlook in terms of like the second half of the year when we think about how aggressive the Fed has to be, or at least continuing in terms of rate hikes. Sure, Leslie. Well, first of all, thanks thanks for having me on again. It it is always exciting. Maybe that's just because (laughs) fixed income and the markets are are always exciting these days. (laughs) Um, You know, we've been very much in the camp that the the transmission mechanism of higher rates, the real economy, isn't what it it once was, right? And that was a, a big theme of ours for 2021, 2022. And so, you know, in 2021, obviously, we were talking about when the Fed hikes, it probably will have to do so aggressively. In 2022, when they did so, we said it's going to take longer before it affects the real economy. Just because when you look at, you know, the amount of fixed rate debt out there, the, the consumer that was so underlevered, um, you know, when you look at corporates who have extended debt with very, very low fix, fixed rates, it just didn't feel like hikes were going to be, um, you know, uh, imminently uh, uh, growth prohibitive for, for the economy. Now, we're basically a year in, uh, and in a lot of respects, you know, we're seeing something start to, to accelerate. I'm not sure how much longer that can last at this point in time. Um, you know, those delayed effects, the insensitivity of the consumer and of corporates to higher rates eventually is, is going to, to wither, right? In other words, you're going to have, you know, companies that have to refi at much higher rates. Right, leverage loans obviously reset higher. Um, you know, you look at the housing market, and eventually you're going to have people, you know, buying homes again at six and seven percent mortgage rates. And although that takes time to ultimately filter down to, to spending impacts, it, it will ultimately. Credit card balances are up, and those have very, very high interest rates. And so I think as we look out towards the, you know, the later stages of this year, call it. Um, Q3, Q4, and into Q1 of 2024, we're going to start to really see the impact of, of hikes. But, uh, you know, there could be a solid another three months or so, or, you know, three to six months where, you know, the data continues to surprise a little bit to the upside. And I think that will, you know, that could prove a false narrative and get people in a lot of trouble because you may see the real weakness start um, a little bit later rather than sooner. Well, let's, let's, let's sort of expand upon that because I really think it's an important point, particularly as because just how different the market was from January to February. And that's a little, let's go back to January where we had this loose financial conditions, 10-year yield went to, you know, 331. You know, we had 
both, even not only high yield, but some of the lowest tiers of high yield have some come out of the gate with some of the best performing months they've had in you know decades. So, and now you know when we go from the February FOMC meeting to you know Chair Powell sort of you know giving the Heisman to loosening financial conditions, and then all of a sudden you have this payroll. And prior to that, you had you know prior to the payroll report, you had you know the S and P up nine percent, and then you shift into February, which was January's data. And you have this complete U-turn, right? We have tighter financial conditions, equity market, fixed income markets down. And more than that, more close to that, we actually saw this, say, like the twos, tens get to 92 basis points in inversion. Like, how do you sort of, you know, I don't want to say which one's right, but sort of with that path, I mean, what's your outlook now that we have, you know, let's just say the two-year, for example, that was at a 403 on Feb 2nd, that's now at a 490. A month later, like what? What is, yeah. what is sort of your view on that? Well, I, I think the rate market, generally speaking, um, is telling the right story. Right? And an, an inverted yield curve, much higher two-year yields, ten-year yields, heck, two-year yields—you know—more than any other part of the curve is suggestive of a, a Fed that, for now at least, still has credibility. Uh, it's suggestive of a Fed that's going to continue to hike and then maintain interest rates at a high level for for you know a fair amount of time whether that be you know 6 months or 12 months or 24 months we'll see but the market's basically telling you listen the fed is is serious and the fed's going to to continue to to hike aggressively to ultimately slow down long term growth and inflation and that's why you're seeing that curve inversion is because you know the long end of the yield curve represents growth and inflation expectations whereas the front end of the yield curve of course represents policy and so the inversion makes total sense if you think the Fed has credibility. Long-term growth and inflation expectations should fall because the Fed is hiking to bring those down, and you get further curve inversion. Um, and I think that's the, the bond market is, is sort of telling you the right story. I think the, the equity market, on the other hand, and, and credit markets for that matter, um, you know, just aren't necessarily on the same page as the Treasury market. You know, you look at spreads, and although they've started to widen, particularly in, in, in investment grade, I would argue they're still way too tight, given the fact that the Fed is going to be um, extremely hell-bent on bringing down long-term growth and inflation expectations in the midst of an earnings recession. I mean, that's not good for corporate credit. It's not good for cyclical equities. And so, you know, I don't know if the rest of the risk assets out there are really getting the picture, but the, the Treasury market seems to, seems to understand what's going on here in our view. So when you think about, you know, and, and we've been on this camp of, you know, around this 4% level, it's not a bad time to add on incremental interest rate risk. I mean, we, we respect the the cash or cash-like type strategies, given the fact the yield curve is so inverted, and we can appreciate earning this carry with this principal protection in the short end. But to your point, I mean, as the economy turns potentially in the second half of the year, like, where do you think is a good place to add, say, interest rate risk, or where do you think rates be interfering? Yep. And also, too, just to add on to that, and because I know you just mentioned things like corporate credit or high, I want to call it, you know, higher quality type credit allocation. Like, what about adding that in terms of incremental interest rate risk as well going forward? So um, I'll start with the, the corporate credit because I have, you know, we, we have a huge conviction on, on corporate credit, which is uh, it just isn't paying you. It just isn't paying you for the risks that are out there. Uh, you have, you know, volatility risk, both interest rate volatility as well as equity volatility. You have downgrade risk. Um, you know, you have fundamental deterioration of, of earnings and leverage and just coverage. 
Um, so there's a lot of risks out there on the for the corporate bond market that we think spreads don't compensate you for. Um, and, and and you can get the same yield and duration profile without taking the credit risk by basically owning the the wings or the, the you know the wings of the yield curve of the treasury yield curve. So what I you know what, what we like to do is we like to own longer term treasuries. Uh, so say 20 year, you know, a lot of people ask me why not the 30 year. Well, the 20 year yields nearly about four and a quarter percent today. It's about 25 basis points more than the 30 year. And our view is that when you do get a flight to safety, as the economic circumstances around us deteriorate at some point, you'll eventually, the yield will trade inside of the 30 year. So you have a good amount of yield performance that can occur in the 20 year part of the curve. So I'm going to go for our total return, meaning price appreciation plus income, our total return uh, instrument in the long end of the yield curve at four and a quarter percent. And then I'm going to pair that with either floating rate, high quality structured product like AAA CLOs that yield anywhere from five and a half to six and a half percent triple uh, A product to floating rate treasuries to uh, you know two one to three year treasuries to floating rate investment grade you know bank debt um, not leverage loans actual you know money center banks three year and in floating rate paper uh, in that sector those those are the types of very very low duration instruments that we like to pair with the long duration to quite frankly create the same yield and duration profile as the corporate bond market without the credit risk. So that that's um, you know that position for us is uh, is how to take advantage of both the high front end yields, but also the total return potential of the long end of the curve should growth start to slow. So when we think about it, and actually when you say the AAA CLO side, I, I do want to touch on that for one in one second. But when we when you think about how look, you and I would both agree as fixed income you know investors, you know you know as painful as 22 was coming into 2023, there was a bit of eureka. You know the opportunity mm-hmm. set is wider. We're finally earning some carry. You know, it's been a long time coming, and there's no more of this quest for yield, search for yield that we heard for, you know, years prior when interest for continued rates were around the one, one and a half percent level. But when you think about sort of like how wide are this opportunity set now, and I know that you mentioned, you know, some of these asset classes. One, I am curious of your view on a if you follow agency MBS, particularly versus CLO, CLO AAAs, and two, when you think about the change in the Fed sort of mindset, meaning that, you know, it's our view right now that more than likely the Fed will not ease in 23. I'm curious your view on that. And two, what do you think the market's going to react to when the Fed actually does pause, even if it's June or July or what that might be? So if you could just sort of expand on some of your um, sectors and versus other sectors, such as, say, the not, not to have a lot of uh, credit risk, such as agency MBS. Yeah. So uh, the, the fundamentals of the agency MBS market are quite attractive. Uh, you know, you have virtually no prepayment risk. You have, you know, low to minimal uh, to, to no default risk. Um, you know, you, you look at the amount of mortgage creation out there and it's it's very, very low. So supply demand technicals look pretty favorable, particularly if banks step back into the market and start you know, buying agency paper, which which they have done a little bit so far this year, more so than last year. And so supply-demand technicals look really good, too, for the agency market. And so fundamentally, I think the agency market is not a bad place to get duration, 
Our only problem with it, and we do have some exposure to it, we're about half the, the, the weight of the ag. Um, and the reason why we're underweight is just because spreads aren't uh, terribly attractive at the moment. Um, you know, and so when I look at spreads for agency paper, I think there is a chance that they, they widen. Uh, and that will prove a great opportunity, and quite frankly, to, to add to our exposure. But at this point in time, spreads are a little bit too tight for us where we feel like there's you know, just as good, if not better, risk-reward you know, in, in the sort of structure I had mentioned earlier of the floating rate and very low duration, high-quality paper paired with the long-duration treasuries. Um, what you've seen in the agency market is over the last couple of years, it's been very much spreads, spreads of the agency market have been very much tied to volatility. And so if you think volatility is going to go up, then you're going to have a, a pretty good chance to get to get back into this high-quality market. And so, you know, less on a fundamental basis why we're underway and more just sort of from evaluation. Um, with regard to the Fed, I, I don't see how they'll be able to cut rates in 2023. You know, I, and I think, quite frankly, if, I, if, if Chair Powell listens to this podcast and, and says, you know, let me call, call, call up Mike Antopoulos afterwards – uh, you know, or, or, wait. Or, or, he, th- make sure you make sure you dial me in if he does. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I, I will, Leslie. We'll, 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 we'll do it together. You know, I, I I think what I would tell Chair Powell is, you know, what you need to show, what you need to tell markets, is that you're not going to cut rates until the unemployment rate is up. Make up a number, 200 basis points. Doesn't matter what inflation is doing. Right. If inflation goes to three percent, you're still well above two. And why would you cut rates at three percent inflation if unemployment's still at three point four? You wouldn't. You would just keep it there because the 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 assumption would be you're at neutrals, which means you don't need to cut. You would just stay there. So until the unemployment rate picks up meaningfully, right? Chair Powell should be telling the markets we're not we're not cutting rates until that happens. So it's hard to see how unemployment is going to accelerate meaningfully. I may might accelerate. But it's not going to accelerate probably meaningfully this year, and so I don't I don't see how they cut this year. In terms of when they stop, my suspicion is they will stop somewhere between five and a half and six percent. And now whether that takes us to June or later, you know, time will tell. But I think that's probably where they pause. I think they pause because economic growth is weak, and that's actually bad for risk assets. And so when economic growth is weak, inflation is falling. I wouldn't expect risk assets to actually rally. I think event maybe initially within the week of the pause, maybe they do. But as the market absorbs the rationale behind said pause, it's going to not be great for risk. In fact, I think it'll be poor for risk. So, I mean, with that said, it's interesting because one that you do have the barbell on, which, which we also like as well. And, and one of the sort of, um, highlights that we try and give our advisors and our clients particularly is, listen, you have to be nimble, but trying to trade around this market is incredibly difficult, as we know. And 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 although I think you and I would both agree that, you know, yes, rates might move a little higher, vol might move a little higher, the delta, the change is going to be much less than what we saw in 22, and you have a bit more cushion here. But how would you sort of so what kind of, kind of advice would you give in this environment in terms of, like, you know, either either horizon and two, I'm just curious, you know, what, what is your sort of wall of worry, do you think, right here with all these unknowns? And you can, and when I ask you that, like, I mean, it could be global, it could be anything. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of advantages to being tactical, um, but it's, it's not in the way I think that most people think of being tactical. I think a lot of people hear tactical and they think you trade a lot. 
and, and that's not how I use the word. I, when I when I use the word, I think about tactical as being more about getting in and out of areas of opportunity that are going through some sort of cyclical or secular shift and being able to do so in an efficient and low-cost manner, right? And so I'll give you an example of that. Right now, we have almost no corporate credit risk in our, in our portfolios. Um, at some point in the next, call it six to nine months, three to 12 months, whatever, three to nine months, whatever the, the number may be, we expect corporate bond spreads to widen a lot. Um, and we want to be able to take advantage of that very, very quickly. We want to be able to go from virtually, you know, no corporate bond risk in our portfolio to being well overweight the, the ag. And, and so having the ability to be tactical when that time comes is going to be really important. But I don't think now is the, you know, the type of environment where you're supposed to be, quote, unquote, trading. I mean, you, you know, we could, you know, if you have, uh, if you're overweight duration in your portfolio tomorrow, you could say, hey, we had good data, I'm going to sell out. And the next day you get a bad payroll, payroll print and, and, and the 20 or 30 year has, has, has rallied, you know, four or five percent. Um, and, and then you miss out on that. So I think trading this market is too difficult, but I think being nimble enough to take advantage of opportunities is going to be important. Um, I'm sorry, Leslie, I forgot I, my, I, my rambling forgot the second part of your question. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is part of like what you think, and this goes to your position because I do like the way, again, that your position with the barbell and how you're thinking about that because I do, I do think that protects you in various potential scenarios. But just with that said, I was just curious what you think of as a wall of worry. Like what do you, oh, what yes. you, what well, keeps course, you up at night, if you will? You know. Well, of course, the wall of worry is, is different for us than maybe, you know, someone who has a different set of positioning. So for for me, I think the, the, the wall of worry would be, I always think about the interest rate cycle in terms of four stages. So kind of in stage one, you have very accommodated central bank policy and fiscal policy, and you're troughing on economic and earnings growth. And it's very clear you want to be underweight duration during stage one. And in stage two, the... You know, the Fed starts to lose control of the inflation narrative. They fall behind the curve. Uh, you know, they lose credibility, and inflation and growth starts to, to take off, right? And that's what we saw, you know, late 2021 and the first half of 2022. And then in, and that's when you want to be most underweight duration and, and really still overweight credit risk. And then in stage three, the Fed regains credibility, starts to hike aggressively. You got that inverted yield curve we spoke about earlier and that's when you start to say, okay, it's now safe to be lagging into longer-term treasuries. Um, and, and then stage four, of course, is uh, the market starts to price in imminent Fed cuts, and ultimately um, the Fed actually does do those cuts, and that's when you get the big, the big return potential in treasuries. I suppose for me, the, you know, the fear would be that we go backwards towards stage two. I think we're in stage three, and we were headed towards stage four. And so what, 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 what I would be concerned about would be that the Fed falls behind the curve again, that they, um, you know, they really start to uh, lack the credibility that they gained for all of 2022. Inflation expectations take off. Growth reaccelerates. You get a reinflating of the bubble in equities and crypto and meme stocks and private credit and everything else. And those things go through the roof again, and now we're back to square one, where rates could go meaningfully higher, and, and, and perhaps even spreads, you know, tighter. And you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But if you want to create a risk scenario, given our current positioning, that's what it would be. Now, of course, if that were to happen, you know, we would we would hope that we would be able to catch it before it did and, and reposition the portfolio. But that's our risk scenario for sure. 
So how would you sort of just in like final thoughts here? Because we want to end on a positive note. <laughs> so so how would you think like you know because again I mean with your and I and I really agree with your positioning but like how do you in terms of let's number one what do you think that the Fed would move to twenty five to fifty at any point in time number one and number two like you know in terms of your relative value positioning um, where do you see sort of like the greatest relative value with how you're positioned right now like what sector. So um, I absolutely think the Fed will go from 25 to 50. Uh, I, I think there were several hawks that wanted to do 50 in the last meeting and were likely, you know, they didn't have a strong enough case to convince the others. And so they acquiesced and, and agreed to 25. My suspicion is the reverse is going to happen at the next meeting. My suspicion is you're going to get Bullard and others, uh, Kashkari, et cetera, to basically not only make the case for 50, but to say, look, the data is backing us up. Look what's going on in inflation expectations. Look what's happening to the economic data. Um, we need to do 50. And so I, I think the Fed actually will go up to 50. That, that would be my, my guess. Of course, we have still retail sales. We have CPI. We have the, pay, the, the jobs report. And so a lot will depend on those three reports. I think they're all really important. But if you continue to get upward surprises, that's what I, I would expect actually 50. I think they'll reaccelerate and send a message to the market that they're serious here. Um, what relative value position do we like the most? Well, you know, not, not to be a cop-out here, but I almost view that barbell as one position, right? right. I kind of right. think about it as, as a package, you know? You, right. You're long the wings, you're underweight credit risk, um, and so I don't think you can have one without the other, right? If you, if you just owned a 20-year and said that's great relative value, well, I mean, it's fine, but it doesn't have the same relative value implications than if you pair it with really high-quality floating rate or structured products or, or, or sort of two years. And so I think it's the package that is the great relative value. Maybe it's right. easier for me to say I think the worst relative value is corporate credit. Right. Okay. Well, listen, this is uh... – you know, as always, Mike, this has been a really, really great conversation. And I, I, you know, I thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, guys. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.